Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. While the Idaho legislature was getting ready to reconvene last week, the Idaho Republican Party was making news of its own. Republicans turned down two controversial resolutions. One would have required candidates to get the endorsement of a central committee before appearing on a Republican ballot. The second resolution would have recommended removal of Jim Jones, former Attorney General and State Supreme Court Justice, from the party's Hall of Fame. I got together this week with Tom Luna, the chairman of the Republican Party. We talked about those resolutions, the state of the party, and I also asked the former state superintendent for his take on the state of the education debate. Here's what he had to say. Well, thank you, Tom, for joining us this week for the podcast. Um, A lot I'd like to get to, but let's just start with a general look at the state of the Republican Party from your view as you head into an election year. Sure. And Kevin, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, you and I go way back. Yes. And this is another iteration of, of our relationship. So I appreciate the opportunity of, of uh, this, this podcast and having this conversation. Um, you know, I think the best way to describe the condition of the uh, uh, Republican Party across the state was played out last weekend at our mm-hmm. winter meeting where we had some, uh, some big issues that were brought before the state party. Uh, and a couple of them got a lot of attention, right? But we saw how the party dealt with a very passionate debate uh, and in the end uh, chose which, which way they wanted to go. Uh, and, you know, it shows me what I have uh, learned as I've traveled to state, state the past year and a half as party chair. And that is that, you know, as Republicans, we, we're a big tent. Therefore, we, we tend to have our disagreements, but really, we agree on 80% of the issues. Uh, but that 20% that we don't agree on, that really comes to light during our primaries. Uh, and that's why we have primaries, right? Is so that we can debate this 20% where we don't agree. But at the end of the day, we'll have an election in May. The Republican Party will pick our candidates and they'll become our nominees. And then we will uh, re- unite around them to assure they get elected in November. So. Uh, I think the party's healthy, it's growing, uh, and there's plenty of evidence of that. Well, let's talk about a couple of those resolutions. There was the one regarding endorsements of candidates before they appear on the ballot, and there's yeah. another one regarding Jim Jones and his place yeah. in, the, in the Republican Hall of Fame. You're a chairman, so you have to kind of navigate the various views of, of the party, but you had to have your own personal opinions about was this good policy for the party to pursue. Yeah, and really, Kevin, my personal opinions are, you know, are important to me. But as party chair, it's I think it's very critical that if we want unity, that people don't think that the party chair is picking winners and losers or using his or her influence to help determine the outcome of these things. And so, you know, I, I work to have a very transparent uh, process. I've always believed that if people feel like they've been treated fairly and they've been heard, that even if the outcome of a decision doesn't go their way, they tend to support it and move forward. But if people feel like they haven't been treated fairly or that they haven't been heard, that, re- that you know, if the decision doesn't go their way, very seldom do they agree and, and want to work towards a better good. And so we've really worked hard to be very, you know, to make sure that everybody is heard and everybody uh, is treated fairly. And that's exactly how we treated both of these resolutions. Uh, understand that it's not difficult to bring a rule or a resolution forward mm-hmm. uh, in the Idaho Republican Party. You know, it, it's just not difficult. What is difficult 
is once that rule is brought forward to the decision makers at the state level, there's a couple of steps you have to go through and a majority of the people you have to convince. And if you don't, it doesn't become a rule or resolution. And we saw both of those resolutions you just mentioned uh, dealt with to, uh, this weekend where both of them were rejected. One of them, the one where we would have used some kind of process where a small number of Republicans would have decided who can and can't be on our ballot uh, in, in the primary, that went down unanimously. I mean, there was not even one vote in favor, but that was after a lot of passionate debate and a lot of give and take. The one dealing with Jim Jones, I think the decision was made that, uh, you know, we're not going to go revisit history and remove somebody from our Hall of Fame uh, and that we may not agree with Jim Jones and most of what he's writing and doing lately, but that it's not the proper role of, of the party to go back and revisit decisions that were made in the past. And quite frankly, <clears throat> I'm probably giving him more attention than we probably should, right? And and uh, and so for, the, for those reasons, that resolution was also defeated. So rather than revisit history, let's look at uh, the current state of affairs here. You've got a primary yeah. coming up in four months. You've got, yeah, it feels personal at some level, certainly between uh, Scott Bedke and Priscilla Giddings and to, uh, to a good degree between Brad Little and Janice McGeehan. I mean, does that give you pause as a party chair that you've got, you know, what feels like well, a very personal level of animosity between candidates. Yeah, I don't know about animosity, but there definitely is stark differences, and it's not hard to identify what those are, right? I will tell you that when I go to my re national Republican leadership meetings, which I'm a part of now, that as we wrap up our meetings, each state gives an update on things going on, and all of us have some story to tell that gets the other's attention. When I stood up and said, I've got my sitting Republican lieutenant governor running against my sitting governor for the primary election, they all said, okay, Tom, you win, right? That's, that's <laughs> You're like, good dynamic. luck with that, right? <laughs> good luck with that. That's a dynamic that is very volatile. Uh, but, but having said that, there is, um, uh, this is gonna be a once in a lifetime type primary, especially for the Republican party. And at the end of the day, we're going to know which direction the party's going to go. Uh, you have legitimate candidates running against incumbents. You have legitimate candidates running uh, for uh, open seats, representing, you know, the, the, the parts of the party where there is disagreement. And so you're going to see a direction that the party's going to go, and it's going to be determined in our main primary. So, Kevin, um, I've told people, if you're a political animal, when we get to our, our primary election in May, that's going to be one of the most interesting nights that we've seen play out in a long, long time. Mm -hmm. But between now and then, it's going to be a heck of a roller coaster ride. And is it really different, or am I reading too much into it? I mean, I go back to 2006 for you. You won a party primary, and it was a very close race. And there was a very you know stark difference on issues between you and your, your opponents in that primary. Is it different this time, or is it, or is it not? Uh, maybe, maybe you know, no one's asked me that question, and maybe it's hard for me because I was in the middle of that one. Sure. I'm not a candidate in this one. Uh, I will tell you though that I think the biggest difference between myself and those that were running against me was our backgrounds, uh, and and therefore that definitely had an influence on our policies and 
things that we would pursue. But I think the fact that I had never been a classroom teacher or a local administrator compared to my those other two running for that office, that was probably what got the most attention and what drove people's decision as to whether they, they wanted to elect a state superintendent that came from a different background. Idaho had never done that before. A few other states had, but that was that was probably the biggest difference. So I never felt like it became personal. Uh, and, you know, uh, um, and in a superintendent's race, you don't raise enough money to have extra dollars sitting around to take a campaign to another level, right? Mm -hmm. You're very strategic. And we spent most of our money, I suspect our candidate, our opponents did too, on just trying to get their message out on what they would do to improve education. So I do think it's different. Let's look past May a little bit to your strategy maybe going into November. To what extent do you try to nationalize the dialogue about politics in November in a general election? And to what extent do you think that's uh, going to be potentially successful? Well, where I definitely make the direct connection to nationalizing the election is when I see the federal government trying to intrude more and more on states' rights. Because then what's happening at the national level definitely has an effect on what happens here in Idaho. So, for example, when we see that once again, this uh, H uh, House Bill One is is being you know uh, they're trying to pump some oxygen back into that idea and get it moving through Congress and through the Senate so that we can nationalize our elections. That would have a huge impact on Idaho. When we look at the uh, economic impact of President Biden's decisions and what it's doing to inflation, that has a big impact on Idaho. And so there's a number of uh, issues that happen at the federal level, national level, that do impact uh, Idahoans at the state level. And so we definitely use those examples of things that we don't want at the federal level and things that we definitely don't want to happen here in Idaho. I'm going to try not to ask this as a yes-no question because I know what the answer would be there, but education, in what way is that an issue that you think Republicans can run on in November? You know, I go back to my experience when I ran for state superintendent. You know, I think that uh, if you look at everything that we did and tried to accomplish, one of the things that we were successful is from that moment forward, education became the number one priority in the legislature, where, came, you know, those were the most passionate debates, and they still are today, about how we're going to improve education in Idaho. That just wasn't the case before I came into office, and I don't blame anybody for it. Maybe it was the times and we were just there at the right time. But my point is, you've seen the Republican Party take a lead role in education policy, in funding programs at work, finding more revenue for things that we know we need to do more of. And those kind of conversations just didn't happen uh, much at all before I came into office anyways. And so it's good to see that we, for a second time, Governor Otter was very much a education governor and Brad Little, you know, from the time he was in the Senate and I first met him, he's always been focused on improving education. And I think you see him uh, continuing that work and that legacy. Um, so I think, you know, when it, when, it, when it comes to education and improving it, we might have uh, differences between Democrats and Republicans and how we want to do it. 
but I think they're all focused on doing it and, and, and figuring out a way to do it. And I ask because here again, there are differences within your party. There are differences in focus. I mean, we saw Governor Little this week in the state of the state advance a fairly traditional approach to education priorities, whether you're talking about uh, putting money into teacher salaries or addressing issues such as early literacy. You have other folks within your party, you know, like uh, Janice McGeehan, the focus may be more on issues like critical race theory and, you know, what, yeah. you know the indoctrination debate. How do you reconcile those camps uh, into, a, in, into a party that can run on education? Yeah, I, I think they do fit together at what degree a Republican is comfortable with, which one is their most important priority. But, you know, I, I think uh, all of that have an impact on the quality of the education, not just how much money we spend, not just which programs we invest in, but then what are our children taught? And is it preparing them for the world that they're going to live in today? And, uh, you know, I, I think that... Uh, I think there's a place for both of those conversations to happen. At the end of the day, it's going to play out to where not only the legislature will make decisions, but then in May, primary voters will decide which priority is the most important to them. Not that one is not important, but which one is the most important. And I, th I think you'll see that play out in the legislative session by the time they adjourn, and then also the, uh, how the voters respond to that in May. So they're not mutually exclusive in your in your view. Yeah. No, I mean, even when I was when I was in office, we focused. I mean, for unfortunately, for a number of the years I was in office, we were talking about historic increases in funding for education. Right. We were trying to figure out how do we educate more kids with less money mm -hmm. and do it more effectively. So that was a completely different dynamic, completely different conversation. Uh, and, but but even in those those times, we were having conversations about the content that children were being taught and making sure it aligned with the skills and talents people needed to be successful in the 21st century. So, and, and uh, so we were always focusing on not just the economic side of it, but the academic side of education. So in your view of it right now, not just as state party chair, but as somebody who's state superintendent for several years for two terms, does Idaho have yeah. a problem right now in terms of teacher recruitment, retention? Everybody does. Everybody does. I work all across the country uh, with many, many states at the governor's level, at the legislative level, at the state superintendent level. Uh, and all of them have unique issues that they deal with, small rural states, large urban uh, populations. But one thing they all have in common is teacher shortages. And, you know, Kevin, we predicted this many, many years ago, long before we thought there would be a pandemic. We could see an aging population and we knew that uh, that that uh, retirement cliff that mm -hmm. we were heading to was going to have as much impact on education as any industry. Uh, and you so, knew the silver you know, tsunami was coming, but you knew exactly. you were going to have a silver tsunami. But you also now have a silver tsunami and a pandemic. Uh, maybe yeah, intensifying. Yeah, that, right. I never heard the silver tsunami. I, I guess maybe I'm. I fit yeah, in that same here. Right now. But. Uh, uh, but we saw this coming. And so, you know, not just in Idaho, but across the country, we have to remove the barriers to teacher certification and we can do it without lowering the bar. I talked a lot about this when I was in office and, and I continue to talk about this and work on these issues across the country. 
and uh, you know, the, the the kids graduating and going into careers today, they do not see themselves committing themselves to decades in one career. We've known this for well over a decade, right? And so there has to be multiple on-ramps into the classroom and off-ramps where people realize that, hey, I want to teach, but I don't want to teach for 30 years, but I do want to give back to my community and want to teach. There, there has to be better ways to get those qualified people into the classroom. And what I've always advocated for is just increasing the applicant pool. Nobody has to hire them, right? But increase the applicant pool. You look at ABCTE, Teachers for Tomorrow, uh, any number of these uh, organizations that create alternate paths to teacher certification, uh, we need to remove the whole alternate path uh, label and just say there's a path to a, a teaching certificate and there's multiple ways to accomplish it. Okay. But, but that, that to me, that's key. So similar to asking you whether we have a, a teacher retention problem or a teacher shortage, does Idaho have a school indoctrination problem in your view? I haven't seen evidence of it in the classroom. And uh, believe me, we raised six kids in public schools long before there was ever conversations that we're having today about CRT and stuff. There was a number of times my kids came home and shared with us stuff they learned in the classroom that I didn't agree with, right? Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I was concerned that there wasn't a more, uh, uh, you know, diverse conversation. So I think, and, and, and I, I suspect my parents had similar issues. This isn't new, but, uh, but you know, uh, there's no doubt that there are people in our country that really believe that the world would be better off if America had never existed. And some of them want that taught to our children. And, you know, I'm opposed to it, and I suspect the majority of Idahoans are opposed to that. And so we need to make sure it never happens. And one more point, uh, you know, no child should ever be taught that somehow they're responsible and should feel guilty for the decisions of their ancestors. So I think that that's something that we can all agree on. And, uh, and I think we need to be always be uh, vigilant and, uh, and focused on assuring that those things don't happen in Idaho schools, because we know there are those that, that want it to happen, not just in Idaho schools, but schools across the country. So we're 22 months into this, and we've had a lot of discussion, and I got to be fair here and, and you know, say that we've had a lot of education coverage that's really focused on should schools be open, should schools be virtual, should there be hybrid, should kids be required to wear masks and social distance. We've had so much focus on that and maybe less discussion about what's happening with the kids and what's happening with yeah. learning loss, what's happening with social emotional uh, issues. How do we get that conversation back to those topics? I, I think we've got to get some level of confidence that people have that they see an end to the row of this pandemic, right? Because it seems like every time we think we've turned the corner and we can start talking about the effects of this pandemic, whether it's economic, whether it's education, whether it's social and emotional uh, uh, um, stress of not just children, but everyone. Every time we think we're, we can start focusing on those things, we get some kind of a surge and, and we start revisiting the same things we were arguing and concerned about before. So I think one, uh, one, one thing is obvious to me is that if we can just get to the point where we're confident we're past this, 
then we can start focusing uh, on, on these other issues. And I think we'll have the resources and then the time to make a consistent effort in addressing those. And right now it's just fits and starts, right? And mm -hmm. it's, it's very, very uh, frustrating for everyone in, in the middle of it. And for all their best intents right now, you're going to have trustees around the state in the days and weeks to come who have to deal with the issue of the moment. I mean, what do you do with this surge? Yeah. You got to talk about that. No That's playbook. first things first. There's no playbook, right? Uh, there's no, there's no playbook for a school board member or a legislator or a governor or a president or, you know, to go back and say, okay, here's what they did in the past when there was a pandemic that lasted for three years. Here's what worked and here's what didn't work. There, there's nothing like that that exists that can help inform us in the decisions that are being made. I'm a former school board member, uh, and I, uh, I sympathize with the decisions that are having to be made in real time by school board members, but I also sympathize with the parents that are frustrated in a system that really isn't the fault of school board members, mm -hmm. but in an education system that was so resistant to modernization that a lot of what we're experiencing because of the pandemic isn't a result of COVID. It's just that COVID exposed these, uh, the, these shortcomings in education that we just refused to address, like modernization. Imagine if our banks would have never modernized, and the only way you could get access to your money is if you went into a bank lobby and, 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 uh, and, and stood across the counter of a bank teller to do your banking and a pandemic hits. We would have had no access to our, to our resources, our, our finances and resources, but banking modernized. Education's been just way too slow to modernize. And like I said, nobody anticipated a pandemic, but imagine if education would have modernized that if we had to go to a virtual learning mode, teachers would be more comfortable teaching that environment. Kids would have had experience doing it. Parents would understand it better and it would have been a lot smoother and we would have the devices and the connectivity so that there wasn't haves and have nots. But, you know, we're seeing the results of a system that continues to be just too resistant to change and modernization. And do you still think schools didn't respond quickly enough or were, were they just not prepared to respond quickly? They're, they weren't prepared. Nobody could be prepared for a pandemic, sure. but if we would have modernized, right. And you've heard me talk about this more as much mm -hmm. as anybody, Kevin, if we would have just properly implemented the technologies of the day into the classroom, not everybody should do virtual, not replacing any teacher with a device, but if we would have just embedded the proper use of technology uh, and those tools into the classroom, we would have been far better prepared and we would not have the haves and have nots, which has always been an issue for me and continues today, where you see some kids just because where they live they have access to the devices and the connectivity. Uh, the teachers have access to the professional development, but you have many kids that don't. And, and so we're scrambling to try to close those gaps. Those gaps wouldn't have existed before if, if we would have modernized sooner. Well, we may have to catch up here down the road to, to revisit <clears throat> yeah. to see how year three turned out with the pandemic and certainly how these elections uh, shake out. So yeah. appreciate your yeah. time as always. You bet. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Again, that was Tom Luna, the chairman of the Idaho Republican Party. Now, I have reached out to the Idaho Democratic Party because I would like to have a similar conversation with them as we head into the election year. 
You might have noticed that Fred Cornforth, the state chairman, stepped down earlier this week, citing health concerns. So I'm going to work with the Democrats, and we'll set up some conversation with them here in the very near future, looking at the election year from the Democratic perspective. So stay tuned for that. That's going to wrap it up for this podcast, and it's going to wrap up a very busy first week of the Idaho legislative session. For us, if you have missed anything, go to idahoednews.org, and we will get you caught up. We break down Governor Brad Little's budget request, where he hopes to spend this $1.9 billion state surplus. Where would that record-breaking surplus go in terms of education, in terms of teacher pay, teacher bonuses, all-day kindergarten? How will that affect your taxes? We have all of that covered. We cover the very first installment of what should be a long debate over academic standards. That happened on Thursday. And then on Monday, we will be back in full force because State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra will be before the legislature to explain her budget request and how she would like to spend money on K-12. So check back with us on Monday. Well, have full coverage of this legislative session. There is so much going on at the State House. So keep an eye on idahoidnews.org for the latest. But we're not just writing about the legislature and the budget and the surplus. We're also keeping a very close eye on the Omicron variant. We'll keep an eye on school closures across the state. I have a piece looking at how this variant and how this outbreak might affect the legislative session. So again, check that story out. In addition to checking us out at idahoednews.org, you can follow us on Twitter at idahoednews. We tweet out links to our latest stories, bulletins on breaking news, Follow us on Facebook and join the conversation there. And check back here next Friday for another edition of the podcast. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Stay safe and have a good week.